Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We're starting off our first Policy and a Pint of 2018 talking about a hot-button topic, sexual harassment. You've probably seen the hashtags MeToo and Time's Up. Here in the state capitol, it's all about the hashtag We Said Enough. That term was introduced in a bipartisan letter published last October in the Los Angeles Times, co-signed by over 140 women working in California politics. It was the first open statement nationwide by women calling for an end to the pervasive culture of harassment and assault in government. Their letter showed that even in a state as progressive as California, the capital community can still be an old boys network that doesn't always treat women with much respect. Since the We Said Enough letter was printed, four California legislators have been called out. State Senate President Kevin DeLeon has hired law firms to investigate alleged misconduct, and multiple hearings have been held in the Capitol to focus on sexual harassment policies. So what happens next? What will come of these legal investigations and legislative hearings? Will any Assembly and Senate bills on this issue have teeth? And how will the sexual harassment scandals in state government translate into policy that affects workplaces around California? We're at Station One, the second floor of the old firehouse in West Sacramento, which is right above Burgers and Brew. Join us and listen as we discuss sexual harassment in the state capitol, a discussion that is the first of many in what will definitely be an interesting election year. I don't introduce the panelists, I let them introduce themselves. Um, and I always like to ask a, a question, so like a personal question, so we get to know them as, as people behind the, the titles. And I think the question here that I want to ask, besides your name and uh, your title, where you work, is um, the personal, what you love best about your current job, especially right now. Uh, is there something in particular that has happened in the past few months that has made your job really special or just like, I'm so glad I'm doing what I do? Um, that is the question I have. So I'm going to start with the woman on my left. Hi, my name is Samantha Corbin. I'm a founding partner of a woman-owned lobbying firm in, in Sacramento, Corbin and Kaiser. Um, also a co-founder of We Said Enough, the nonprofit and a, a women's movement that started um, with some of my colleagues here um, in October of, of this last year. Um, in relation to your question, I would say one of the things I like the most is being my own boss because no one can fire me. Uh, and that certainly has given me the opportunity to be in a position of privilege, you know. Uh, to speak out on some of these issues uh, over the past few months, for which I'm very grateful, um, as well as I'm grateful for the support from our clients as we talk about some of these more difficult issues. Hi, I'm Janine Yancey, and uh, I'm an employment, employment lawyer and also founder and CEO of M-Train, which is a culture tech platform providing education and advice to both employers and employees on workplace issues such as harassment, bias, ethics. Um, and I am appreciating a lot right now um, this watershed moment because I have really found myself uh, on the vanguard of, of trying to disrupt things and you know we've got 750 employer clients 
and sometimes some of the ideas I've had over the last two to three years have not been very comfortable to the employers, but now they're increasingly so. So there you go. Hi, I'm Laura Friedman. I'm an assembly member in my the end of my first term from the Los Angeles area. And the thing that I like most about my job right now is that Right now in California, I think that we as a state represent a set of principles and ideals that are different a little bit than the rest of the country and certainly very different than what we're seeing coming out of Washington, D.C. And I get to turn those ideals into policy and try to put them in place in California into action. And that's tremendously gratifying and exciting. Hi, thank you. I'm Jody Hicks. I'm a partner in a lobbying firm in Sacramento, Damari Brown, Hicks, and Kessler. I'm the Hicks in that group. Um, <laughs> three out of four of the partners are women, so we're women-owned. And I think um, what I love most, at least at this moment and this time and this year, is I get to work on some really cool stuff. And I think when we went into starting our firm, one of the things we like to say is we want to have enough corporate clients that pay our bills where we still get to do the things we want to do. And we do some pro bono work and we take on some clients that maybe don't pay us as much, but we get to do the stuff. And, and it's a, especially this moment in time in California, working on all of the things that we're working on. I, I just feel really fortunate and our firm has grown enough and to be able to do that and I also enjoy understanding that I'm in a place of privilege to not only get to work on the things that I wanna work on but to be able to have a voice and echo what Samantha said that I, I get to have the privilege of speaking out without fear. Great, thank you again. So I wanted to start with you, Samantha, because when I was writing the description of the event, there's hashtags that stand out. Obviously, Me Too, Time's Up is a new one. And here in particular, I think it was so resonant, We Said Enough, which started as a letter, uh, an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times, but turned into so much more since then, since October, I believe it was published. So I wanted to, you to explain how We Said Enough got its start, and now that it turned from op-ed to organization, what are the plans? What, what do you want to do? I could talk for like 65 minutes on that, but I'll try to be more succinct than that. Um, I worked in politics in, in Sacramento since I was 21, uh, which is a, a young age that, you know, my daughter now almost 16, I would not encourage her to follow such a path but have been around for, for a while in Sacramento politics and certainly had a, a, a range of experiences, um, many of, of which have been unpleasant and, and sort of in this arena. And, I, and for years I found myself wondering as I've gotten older, where do all the women go? There's, there's, not, um, there's not a lot of Jody Hicks and me. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of this age out where after 30, women kind of disappear. If they're not institutionalized in the building, they just kind of go away. And I always thought, oh, it must be because of, you know, they're having children, they're getting married, and that's not why. And it's a tough culture to work in, and it's something that I've been outspoken with friends with for years. And, um, you know, October 14th, I think, one of my very good friends, Adama Iwu, who is on the cover of Time Magazine as a person of the year, called me very, very frustrated about an experience. She'd had an event in which many men in our community on the heels of Harvey Weinstein were 
talking about that incident and how they just couldn't imagine that that culture was relevant here in our political community um, and, and how could they be better allies. And as if it was the middle of an SNL sketch, um, uh, an inebriated lobbyist walked up and started sort of pawing at her and acting very inappropriately and really no one responded or intervened. And she said, well, how do you miss that? I said, well, you know that guy, because apparently that's the bar for being able to paw at you at a public event. I've met you before. And so she called me the next morning, and she was incensed, and said, I, I, I want to do something. I think I want to write a letter. Um, what do I do? What do I, you know, let, would you sign a letter with me? And we didn't have a letter. And reflecting on my own experiences, I said, number one, yes, uh, I will absolutely sign a letter with you. And by the way, I've already procured a web domain in the last 15 minutes we've been on the phone. <laughs> and a colleague of mine, Alicia Lewis, who's in the room, was screaming from across the house, get the social media, I'm grabbing the Twitter. <laughs> and Adama said, you guys are nuts because there's like three people that I know will sign this letter and you, we are it. And you know, those of us that have, have been in this community for a while, you know, I, I personally felt it, our firm represents almost exclusively nonprofit and, and cause-based organizations who do coalition building work. And I just thought, this has legs. People are going to want to talk. Because I want to talk. This is one of my best friends asking me this question after a decade. And I have like 20 stories I haven't told her that I want to tell her. And so over the course of the next few days, um, you know, we all kind of took our own little lists and said, well, let's just circulate this letter and see if it even has legs. And between a 48-hour period, upwards of 500 women in the political community had all read it, many of whom called um, you know, all hours of the day and the night to tell their stories, to provide feedback. And, and many of them said, you know, this letter doesn't read like me. Draft one doesn't feel like me. This wasn't really my experience. Here's my experience. And, and so we went through rounds of edits. And we ended up with about 140 women who, um, who all felt very strongly about that they felt comfortable signing the letter and strongly about the content. Um, and, and I would note there are predominantly women like Jody and myself who are in positions where um, we didn't have to fear any kind of significant retaliation for coming forward on these issues. And, you know, so we. Tuesday, October 17th, we were published in the LA Times, and what seemed like excessive over-preparation over the course of a three-day weekend with a few bottles of wine um, actually was nowhere near enough preparation. We got 22,000 hits on the website almost immediately, um, phone calls from early in the morning from all over the country and, the nation, or in the, and internationally, got a 4 a.m. call. Uh, thinking probably a legislator was calling me to tell me what a jerk I was, and it was a reporter for the BBC London. I thought Dame Edna was calling me. And so it just was constant. And, and we realized pretty quickly we needed to do something. You know, it, it, I keep joking, you break it, you buy it. But we've illuminated this issue, and, and those of us I know myself that have signed the letter and were primary instigators have felt pretty strongly that um, we have a personal and moral obligation to get this right and to make sure it's not a flash in the pan moment where people have really put themselves out and, and walked their trauma out on a national stage to just really not have anything happen. And, and so on a go forward, now that we, as, as we said enough, have formed a nonprofit, 
we're looking at how do we elevate, not duplicate the voices of other women, other organizations, and men as well, um, and a variety of communities. How do we elevate them as, as victims, as survivors, and make sure that our colleagues who are doing excellent work out in the field across a variety of communities are able to connect and access resources. Um, and so we've been working on technology solutions and, and policy solutions to do just that, both here in California uh, and, and across the country. So we're really excited about it. Look, to, look forward to talking about it more. Yeah, I have specific questions about the app because technology is something that we're gonna talk about a little later and Janine and Samantha have uh, two things to discuss in that field. And I have to apologize, I'm getting over the cold. I, I was really bad last week, so there's that still that dry cough. So uh, pardon me in advance for the, the dry cough. But Laura, I wanted to ask you a question because after we set it up, um, you were in an interesting position as the chair of the Assembly Rules Subcommittee on Harassment, Discrimination, and Retaliation Prevention and Response. So from what I read, um, it was a committee that was just supposed to meet every once in a while. I read once in a decade an update of the chamber's policies. But then this happened, and then uh, you were chair of this subcommittee, and it met for the first time on this topic. So you were chairing and leading all these hearings that I think many of us read about in the Sacramento Bee, uh, November, December. And so as a uh, person who had just joined uh, the legislature, first time assembly person, um, this probably was a new area for you, but I did read that you worked in Hollywood, Los Angeles, as a film producer, and as we all know, there's a lot of discussion about sexual harassment in that area. So I wanted to get your take about what, I guess what you learned or what really surprised you when you were uh, doing these hearings, and maybe what didn't surprise you based on past experience, just some notable things during that time. Yeah, no issues in the film business when it comes to sexual harassment. You know, it's funny because I remember years ago, a couple years ago when I was on the Glendale City Council, I went to Washington, D.C. for a lobbying trip and walked into a restaurant in Washington, D.C. and immediately felt at home. And I said, I know this place. I know exactly how the power dynamics work here. I know what's happening in this restaurant that's sort of swirling around me. I don't know who these people are, but I know exactly what positions they all hold because it was just like Hollywood. You know, going into the Ivy in Beverly Hills or going into Morton's felt exactly like going into the Capitol Grill in DC. Um, it's all about power transactions and kind of a, you know, symbiotic relationships and power exchanges. And in some ways, there's a lot of similarities between the dynamics in politics um, Sacramento is, you know, similar in a much, much smaller way, and then also what happens in Hollywood, you know, and I, before all this happened, I would say to people like, oh yeah, I totally know what, you know, this world, because like people pitch to me all day, and then like I go and I have dinner, and I have drinks, because it's just like Hollywood. Um, and I make a product, you know, there it was, I was making movies, here I'm making legislation, but it's kind of the same creative process. And unfortunately, some of the negative attributes seem to also translate from one industry to another. And I think a lot of that has to do with those power dynamics. And we don't just see it in those industries, we see it in a lot of industries, but certainly in politics and in Hollywood, you have some similar dynamics of really outplaced power dynamics between colleagues, people who are less accountable than other people, people who are seen as being more valuable than other people, and a place where eccentricity 
and being kind of a rogue element and being someone who's a bit of a bully can actually be celebrated at times. So um, I think a lot of that leads to some of the same abuses that we've seen in both industries. That doesn't at all answer your question, but I just wanted to get it out there because you made me think about it. Um, so yeah, I'm a total accidental part of this in a way. I was assigned to be the chair of this committee in June of last year and promptly forgot about it. Like I literally got a letter and someone handed me this letter and it said this and I was like, oh, okay, this sounds like whatever. And I put it in a pile. And then um, in November, I actually got the letter and, was, and I signed on to the letter because of my experiences in the past and just recognizing, hey, you know, this sounds really credible to me. I've, where have I seen this before? And um, signed on and then about three nights later, literally woke up in the middle of the night and said, wait a minute, I just signed this letter. We've just been hearing about these things happening in the Capitol. People have been starting to come forward and I think there's a committee on sexual harassment. And I think, <laughs> I think I might be the chair. And then the next morning I came into the office and I spoke to my chief, Allison. I said, Allison, am I dreaming? But am I the chair of a committee on sexual harassment? And she said, yeah, you are. And I said, well, I think it's time to activate that committee. And um, then, you know, decided that there was a real role for this committee right now. You know, the, the stars had aligned and that um, it was my responsibility to find a path to, to facilitate this discussion at a at sort of an official level, but including all of the stakeholders so that they all had a real voice. And what's interesting about this committee that makes it different from the other types of committees that we're used to dealing with in the legislature, for those of you who are familiar with that, is that it's not a policy committee. So it's not a standing committee that hears bills. And it's also not an informational committee that is just there to kind of gather information and, and you know, sort of have the information out there. It's an unusual beast of a rulemaking committee. So the committee actually will make recommendations that then will go to the full rule, uh, joint rules committee to be adopted as the policies and procedures of the legislature moving forward, which is pretty a direct and powerful um, thing to, to have as a tool. So I feel like my, you know, my goal is really to just sort of shepherd this ship, but to bring in the relevant experts to inform the committee, to bring the public along for, to hear their input, because it's imp really important that the capital community who's been impacted has a, a voice in this, so that we all kind of go on this, and I hate that term, the journey. We're all gonna go on this journey together. And at the end of it, we'll arrive at a policy in a very transparent way, which is not usually the way these things happen, but in a way where everybody sees every step of the way and how we end up with the policy that we have with, the in, with information from the best experts from around the country and we're out there you know, kind of bringing them in and with all of the stakeholders saying, here's what happened and you have to make sure that doesn't happen and here's what we're afraid of happening and here's what we'd, we'd like to see you know, helping to inform and then making recommendations that we can all weigh in on and then hopefully get adopted. So it's, it's sort of an unusual process and everything's kind of come together at the same time, which is pretty terrific. And it's my hope that at the end, not only do we develop something that you know, has sort of guiding principles that I'm happy to talk about at some point that I've been thinking about, but something that's really powerful and most importantly, very protective of our employees. 
and of people who interact with the Capitol, all of people who interact with us. And that can serve as a model for other state houses and other governmental organizations because we are a little different than private organizations in terms of our structure. So what works in a private organization can't exactly be adopted when you have elected officials in the mix. So it's, it's going to be, I think, fairly groundbreaking policy. And I'm, I think we had a great first hearing thanks to Samantha's help and Jody's help and everyone who really bravely got up and talked in a very candid way, in a very brave way to the public to really put a face and a voice uh, and be the presence for all of those victims out there. It's a very powerful and interesting hearing. And I think a very real hearing if you watch it which I recommend if you're interested in this, you do. It was not at all window glossing. This was a very honest hearing, and we can now build on that to, to create great policy. And a, a follow-up question on that, because uh, that hearing was an assembly hearing, and there was some complaints, like complaints that this is just another example. The Senate and the assembly do their own separate things, but they never joined together. But then after the new year started, it was announced that you are chairing a joint committee uh, to look at procedures that better protect victims of misconduct. So is that, obviously this is a separate committee, how will that uh, work, if anything different with that one? Well, the committee's not going to go back and rehash the work we already did. It's going to build on that. And what's great is that for once we'll have a unified procedure where we don't have that right now because there shouldn't be two paths to justice there shouldn't be two separate policies people who work in the building all deserve the same road to to fairness and um, we certainly have a policy that needs a lot more transparency because one of the things that i realized during the hearing was that it was incredibly confusing and it was hard even with the with this sort of human resources staff explaining the policy it was really hard to understand how it works. And so duplicate that now with two different houses with two separate policies, and you have a system that's really not fair to the people who have to try to navigate within it. So we'll have something at the end of this that is a single policy, even though it's sort of adopted by both houses, but it'll be, this, it'll be mirror policies, I'm assuming, on both sides. Um, so what I obviously, like many women, followed me too. I read the, the Los Angeles Times letter um, started uh, reading the B about the hearings. And then I think it was on Marketplace, some radio station, I heard a woman, a lobbyist, who said, this is good, but it's also bad because I feel like my business is going to be impacted by this in a negative way sometimes. Um, and then I thought, that's interesting. There, this might, there might be some downside to this. And then I came across, I believe, a... Um, I'm not sure if that was you, Jody, or you were just mentioned in a story where you talked about this. You you signed the letter, and then you said uh, a man emailed you to say he wouldn't hire your firm because he'd have to walk on eggshells, quote unquote. And men are rethinking how, where, and when to have work meetings with women. So, I just wanted to see for your business, how do you see the spotlight now on sexual harassment affecting your business for better or for worse, and and then the professions of other wor women working within the capital or as a lobbyist, um, what is, will there be a backlash in some way? What do you see happening? So I, I come at this from a, a couple of different places. I have been a staffer in the building. I used to be the legislative director for California Now, so I've worked on this issue. You know, my shirt is from a campaign. It actually says I hurt consensual sex 
which is a campaign that was a decade ago. So this is not a topic that's new. It's a topic that everybody's listening to, which is great. But women have been coming forward and talking about this for many, many years. Nobody's been listening until now, um, which is a good thing, and we celebrate that. Um, and now I come at it from a business owner, both getting clients and also as an employer. Um, and I did have, I've had two experiences since all of this has come out. One is, um, and I, my business partner, Amy, is here, who it, it happened um, directly with the both of us. But we had a client come to us kind of awkwardly and uh, had approached a senator about um, wanting to have drinks to talk about this topic. It was a meeting that he couldn't attend, but wanted to have drinks before the new year and would bring in our firm that we had a relationship. And the senator was like, you know, um, based on everything that's going on, there's a couple of us that are getting together and, and we might start a policy to not have drinks with female lobbyists. And, and so, our client, to their credit, was caught off guard and didn't handle it right at the moment, but came directly to us with, you know, however you want me to handle it, I will handle it, you tell me. So we brought him in and said, are you comfortable with us saying that we heard this from you and we're going to address it head on? And that's what we did. We called up the senator. Um, I think Amy took the most of the yelling. Um, <laughs> but it was a very candid conversation, and again, that's where I say I understand that I come from this at a place of privilege, that very, very many lobbyists and staffers could not do this. But what we did was had the conversation was, you know what, I was actually slated to be on NPR that day, and it was like, okay, you all want to make a policy that cuts out an entire gender? Cool. Do it. I'm going to be on NPR and I'm going to say your name. Like, is that okay with you? Then that's okay with us, as long as everybody's comfortable. And and it was an immediate like, whoa, <laughs> sorry, let's have a conversation. Um, and then after I was on NPR and I I talked about some of this, one of the things that I said was, and I, and I'll stand by this, was every woman I know and in every industry that I've been in has experienced some sort of harassment. And I think, I'll even go one step further, I think every girl that's gone through junior high has experienced some sort of harassment. And so this conversation is not new. And so if it's going to affect our business, quite frankly, this culture affects our business, and it always has. And, and, you know, those of us that have been able to be successful means that we've successfully gained a skill set of navigating through this. And that's not necessarily fair for all the other young women that have maybe gone in the direction of policy or, you know, something else because it's such a difficult thing to navigate. And that, that's really right now in this moment when we're finally talking about it, what I hope to see is that we can have a really good conversation about how we're gonna change the culture. I think it starts with the work that, that you are doing, certainly you know, grateful for the, the We Said Enough moment that, that folks are looking at, and it starts with policy, but it also starts with some things that you can't legislate, which is 
we need to change the culture and, and how this is being affected. And, and so after my NPR moment I did, I got a few emails and one of them was very harsh that you're, you know, I work, and, and that's, I, I hear that very often is it's not all the time, what about these things, you know, what is, and I think men in particular are confused and don't know how to talk about this issue, but also defensive. I mean, quite frankly, the culture is working for, for a good half of the, <laughs> the population. It's not working for the other half. So, so changing it is uncomfortable, right? It's, it's meaning change that's maybe not work, that's not gonna be as, as good for, for half of our population, but it's, an, it's work that we all have to do. And I, I am applauding all of the work that everybody's doing to, to have this be a conversation today. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I um, had a question about is being a silence breaker, because that was the, the term that Time Magazine used for their, their people of the year, one of them, Adama, from We Said Enough was on the cover. A silence breaker, is it easier now or not? Because when I, I asked this, because when I put together this panel, I did uh, want to have someone who worked in the Capitol as a staffer, I don't know where we would have put them on the stage, um, to, to be here. And I was told it's, it's tough still for them to speak out. And if I remember correctly, um, someone who did sign the We Said Enough letter was uh, fired or asked to leave her position um, at a firm. So um, for the three people who've just talked, because I have a next question for Janine uh, after this, is being a silence breaker now easier or still not? Um, where does it stand? J Jody. So I, I think there's definitely comfort in numbers. And, and I will say again, it's, it's, it's really the people that are coming forward knowing that they're going to be on Time Magazine, it's really amazing. It's amazing that people will put themselves forward and tell those stories. But I do also want to impress, people have been telling stories. Nobody's been listening until right now. And I think even the Time's Up movement, I think, you know, will say that, that the hashtag MeToo started actually two years ago. And it was when Alyssa Milano um, put it, retweeted it, and talked about it that it became this viral sensation. And so I think the celebrities understand fully that when they told their stories as celebrities, all of a sudden it was a movement. But people have been telling stories and, and, and nobody's been paying attention. So um, that's not to say we shouldn't celebrate what's happening right now. Um, I think it's always difficult as women you know, there's shame involved, there's, there's, it's embarrassing for, for the younger folks that you wanted to have on this panel. It's, it's, they know that they have to go out and apply for jobs. They're still looking for their career to go upwards and their trajectory to be upwards. And so they don't want that label the next time they're applying for a job to be the girl that this happened to. Nobody wants that. And so for the ones that have come forward, I just think they're amazing and you know everyone is amazing for telling their stories I don't know if it ever becomes a time where it's easy I think certainly in numbers and now that there's an there's at least a, a, a hope and an understanding that they're going to be heard 
um, makes it easier. But I don't think it's ever easy. Samantha, did you want to add? Sure. I, you know, I, I would say this is, <clears throat> there's an opportunity in this moment, um, but it, it could be a fleeting moment if we don't handle it right. The pendulum swings, right? And all of us remember Anita Hill, and, and that was a very significant moment, but, but then no action was taken, right? And, and having the conversation in and of itself isn't, isn't enough. When um, the first few days after the campaign started, after getting a multitude of phone calls, certainly I've had my own experiences up to and including being assaulted while working in this community. And I realized really quickly that those of us that were at the forefront of this movement really didn't have the luxury of being the victim because it took away from everyone else's victimization. And, and, and more than that, that wasn't what was important in the moment because the victims add up. It's almost numbing to just hear story after story. And right now, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's politics, whether it's a variety of other industries, the, the default status has become, you know, six months ago, it was we don't believe women. A year ago, you had dozens of women coming out against then-president-elect uh, Trump. And I remember on my birthday, it was in New Orleans, my mother called me. It was the day the infamous Grab Her By The What You Know video came out. It was my birthday, commemorated forever. And my mother, who is a hardcore Trump-trained Republican, called and said, I know you're upset about this, but I think it's extraordinarily hypocritical. You've been working in politics all this time. Isn't it just slap and tickle? I mean, why are you surprised that any president is going to have this background, given the culture that's allowed to persist in politics overall? And I really I wanted to argue with her. I really, I really couldn't argue with her. And, and so... You know, as we look at this on a go forward, particularly um, in a position where we represent nonprofits and cause-based organizations and, and people that really have been, you know, down in the field doing this work for years, people have been telling their stories. We haven't listened to them. And, and I think many of us fear that the culture could shift right back. The pendulum could swing right back to a women are overreacting, victims are overreacting, we don't believe them. Um, and so what we want to make sure is that there's room in this conversation on a go forward for evolution and restoration. Right now, everything is very binary. You know, in, in watching um, the Golden Globes, there was a lot of criticism online, those of you that are, are Twitter fans. Um, at we Said Enough, we complain frequently about how Twitter justice is not actually due process. <laughs> and like, Twitter justice is really harsh, you guys. And so people after the Golden Globes, for every man who stood up but didn't say something about sexual harassment, they were torn limb from limb on the internet for not saying anything and not standing with women and not supporting them. And then for every man who did express support, they were torn limb from limb for being a hypocrite because there were like 20 women that came out and said, well, you made me uncomfortable that one time up to actually you are in fact an actual rapist. And so it's very binary. It's zero or one. You're a, rap you're a sinner, you're a saint. You're a rapist, you're not. And you know, as I've pointed out to a few people, I, I got sort of called out by someone in the legislature recently who said, why are you meeting with all of the old white men on this issue? And I was like, newsflash, they still have all the power. <laughs> because they do, and if we can't get to a place in a conversation where the men feel safe engaging, and they can be upstanders and bystanders who report and who stand up for women, and if they make a mistake or they make someone uncomfortable, they have to be able to come to a place where they can have a conversation and move forward. And frankly, if we're adults making the laws of the land and we can't have a conversation that differentiates between a hug and actual rape, we have like serious problems.
Um, and so those are the things that we're, we're looking at on a go forward. So I wouldn't say it's easier to come forward. I think, you know, I, I've, I've noticed going in the Capitol, I have a fan club and a, like a pretty little hate club. It just depends. And there are staff that will text me and say, thank you so much. Um, can I talk to you after work? But like, don't walk by me in the building. I don't want anyone to see you with me because I'm like the sexual harassment fairy. And so people are still totally terrified, and, it, and, and men as well, both men and women. And it's for lack of a process and for lack of a discourse that's reasonable. And it's something that if we don't take swift action on as a community, um, not just a political community, but a national community, we're going to continue to be in a place where people don't feel safe, they don't feel comfortable, and I worry the pendulum swings right back, and, and it's still not safe to come forward. So the next question is uh, for you, Janine, last but not least, because I, I thought obviously legislation um, is being considered and it's going to come uh, apply to uh, the workplace businesses. And Janine has, uh, as an employment law attorney, you obviously train businesses in many aspects. Harassment is one of them. So I was wondering, since um, the past few months, how have uh, clients new or potential reacted to what's going on in the Capitol, Silicon Valley, Hollywood? Um, are you getting more calls for them? What questions are they asking you? What are you seeing now that's different than, say, six to nine months ago? Yeah, no, certainly, but let me maybe um, put out a few comments that round out this discussion. So we have online education and um, one thing, and I alluded to this earlier, one thing that I implemented a few years ago was this online private chat feature. So I had to go do a, you know, kind of a sales job, if you will, to clients such as Pinterest and Netflix and Yelp. Um, so some really progressive organizations, and yet when it came to the thought of, oh my goodness, we're gonna have our thousand employees talk to these people, experts online, and we don't know what they're saying, they were really uncomfortable with it. And so, you know, we had to kind of assure them that it was okay and it was all in their interests, you know, both the employees and the employers. So, you know, we have, you know, at least two, two and a half years now of experience of what it feels like to have both men and women of all backgrounds share their private thoughts with us. Um, our community of experts that are all kind of employment lawyers and former regulators on this issue. and. I just think it's important for us to recognize that we have what I would call the angry white male contingency. So the man that will never say in public or to their colleagues what they're really feeling, trust me, they'll say it on chat because they don't see us, they don't know us, it's kind of like the Twitter fear, right? And I think it's really telling. Um, so there, there is, you know, there's, there's definitely a potential backlash out there. Um, because they're feeling, you know, vulnerable and castigated. And, and Samantha, to your point, you don't ever want to have somebody feel castigated because you get nowhere for that. Um, but, and then, and then one other point, which is, you know, we've mentioned Hollywood, we've mentioned the Capitol. Well, I come from Silicon Valley. And in 2014, I had a meeting with, you know, a preeminent uh, venture capital firm Sand Hill Road, they invested in Facebook and LinkedIn and you know, a bunch of other people. And I said, I have this idea and I really wanna put a web-based solution to basically mediate between employer and employee relations. I think it could solve harassment. And I had these three guys just look at me and say, what, what? 
what? Why? You know, and then they got kind of embarrassed and they just laughed. And then just just close that loop. They came calling this year, and I'm like, okay. And now we're only, for the most part, interested in, in talking to social impact venture capitalists. Um, but I said, okay, I met with those folks before. I'll meet with them again. And we had a meeting just last week. Um, and it was right when the Vanity Fair article was profiled. I don't know if any of you read it. Emily Chang's, uh, you know, Brotopia. Oh, about the sex parties? Yes. And, okay, drug-fueled so, sex parties? So we're, we're, I'm talking about it with my chief product officer who comes from LinkedIn, and, you know, he's, you know, he's a male ally. And we're talking about it, and it's, it's a Zoom meeting, so the venture capitalists, two of them get online, and they're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm like, oh, you know, that Vanity Fair article talking about sex parties. So context, they're about to have a discussion of potentially investing $10 million into a company that's trying to solve harassment. That's the context. These two venture capitalists say, oh, I, I haven't read it. How come I'm not getting invited to those sex parties? Not a joke. I'm, I'm like waiting for like, are we laughing? No, we're not laughing here. <laughs> so I let it go. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, I said, so if we continue to talk, I'm going to advise you to hold that thought and just, just keep it in your head moving forward. But I mean, it's just kind of a little finger on the pulse of how systemic, how really deep these challenges are. Um, so now looping back to your question, Vanessa. So um, I am so tickled, really, because I've been this Pollyanna um, you know, a few years ago, I could have sold our business and we'd be part of LinkedIn and I'd be pretty much, you know, on the beach retired. And I had this, you know, crazy idea, like, I really want to solve harassment. <laughs> and they're like, well, whatever. Um, so I've been pushing the vanguard here to try to, like, create solutions that actually inform people and solve these problems. And this is the first time that I am hearing employers say, hey, we need to have our employees understand how to, how to navigate the workplace. We need to have them feel comfortable. And we've been promoting for a long time, it's not about compliance, it's about culture. Like compliance is just to check the box. And if you fix the culture, your compliance is already taken care of. So let's focus on the one and the other will follow. And that's, that's been really pleasant and, and even, um, organizations that you know said to us even six months ago we had no budget we had no budget all of a sudden their CEO is is giving them budget to you know disseminate information and resources to help improve, improve the culture so it's a good sign I have a whole bunch of questions but I'm hoping that you all do too so if you want to start lining up at the microphone right here in the center of the room uh, we can start taking them so we have one gentleman coming up to the mic right now. I'm sorry that I'm a gentleman coming up to the microphone. Oh. I, we, we don't know that yet. Okay, don't. the man coming up to the microphone, what yes. is your question? Um, I was uh, very curious about the binary statement. Um, that That's where the conversation is. Um, the 50% are happy, the 50% are not so happy, um, male versus female. Um, there's an idea that I believe I would love to hear your comments on um, that, that would bring that male element that's uncomfortable, that may not have been the perpetrator of 
um, lascivious acts, but um, condoned by their silence. That if there were women, um, specifically the, the picture that went viral uh, of Oprah and Harvey Weinstein together hugging, um, were there moments when specifically um, Oprah saw Harvey with a young female and knew because of his actions with her that this may be going to go to another level, that if there were women who were willing to step up and say, I was there, I witnessed, and at that time I said nothing. If there, were, if there was another, not just the Me Too, but the promise that I won't do that again, you, I bet you then you'll have men coming out from the 50% that weren't guilty of the action, but guilty of inaction. And I'd love to hear your, your comments on that. If any of you have been in a position like that where you saw, you kind of knew and didn't say anything. Let's start with Samantha. Great comments. I, I would say, um, you know, number one, I've actually been shocked in conversations with people who I've been in the same room with when certain activities have occurred who seem seemingly were oblivious. Um, so people look at thing through, things through their own lens. They really do. Um, and so I, I, I've kind of given up on assuming that people see things the, the same way I do and, the, and because we all have different boundaries culturally, professionally, personally, experientially. Something that's offensive to me might not be offensive to someone else. Something that isn't offensive to me might be the worst day of someone else's life. And, and so understanding where boundaries are is, is extraordinarily important. Um, as we've been looking at developing tools, and I totally can't wait to talk to you after we're off the stage. Um, you know, some of the things we've been looking at are empowering people in our community. So we've been working to build out reporting and, and resource applications, and, and one of the versions that we're going to start beta testing in a week, or a couple weeks, um, we're gonna, uh, includes the opportunity not only to report if you're a victim, but if you're a bystander. I saw it, I heard it, I was an unwilling participant, someone showed me. Because the men in the communities, they have the same burden that the women do. And the power dynamics are often also not on their side. And so over the past few weeks, have we been sitting down with um, you know, elected officials, lobbyists, people totally outside of our industry, men and women, um, from a variety of power dynamics, the men in looking at the tool has been really interesting. Um, they perk right up and they go, I can report that I saw something I didn't like? Well, yeah, no, we'd, we'd like really prefer you did that, men. But there's, there's a, a deterrent in the moment, right? You know, it's, it's someone says something uncomfortable or does something uncomfortable, and it's either silent or everyone kind of goes, ha, ah. And then no one says anything, so everyone assumes it's OK. Because it's, it's actually hard to be an upstander. It's hard to be a bystander who comes forward. And, and frankly, there's still, um, there's still problems that people face when they become a whistleblower. It's why most, um, most industries and entities notwithstanding the California state legislature currently have whistleblower protections to protect the people who come forward because anyone who says anything gets retaliated against. You're suddenly like not a cool person if you're pushing the status quo. And we live in a rape culture. And that's a rape culture that impacts men and women. It's not safe for men or women to say, hey, that's not cool. And so as we've been looking at solutions, we've been looking in them 
at them in that context so that men can also stand up, so that men and women can both be effective bystanders, whistleblowers, capable of redemption and capable of moving the conversation forward. Um, because what we have right now is not a very empowering dynamic for anyone. And, and to my point about binary earlier, which you, which you mentioned, it leaves everyone feeling culpable, complicit, um, and uncomfortable. And, and then you don't feel empowered to speak up to change the culture because you feel like at least a little bit it's your fault. And, and for men and women, we need to alleviate that. We need to evolve past that and have a culture where we can have a conversation and move forward and reset boundaries. Jody. So first, let me say thank you for, for coming up and bringing this conversation, because I think it, it is, and I do understand that in this moment, I think there are a lot of men that feel, as Samantha said, if I say something, it sounds like I'm telling women what I think, and maybe it's not my place. If I don't say anything, then I'm an ass for not talking about it. This is a hard one for me, and you're not going to probably like what I'm going to say, but I do find it troubling that we still, that the, the question in the way that you posed it in bringing up Oprah was 50% of the population feels, you know, left out or shut out or not empowered to, to discuss this subject. And maybe if women admitted that we did something wrong too, then maybe you'd, men would come forward. At least that's what I heard. And, and you can come up and, and clarify if you want. That, that's kind of what I heard. And, and my bristling at that is, first of all, women are such a low, like how many women-owned businesses are there? How many women CEOs are there? How many of us are truly in the power position, Oprah notwithstanding, who, by the way, was the first black woman to get that award in history? So, I mean, we're, we're pointing to the, the few women that are in a power place and saying, well, why didn't she say something? Well, she didn't say something because it takes a lot to get to that spot. And so, so you're asking women to be the ones to put themselves out there and maybe not get to the top. And, and that's, it's so unfair. This is the culture that, that we experience. Having said that, I will tell you on a personal note, in my career, which is you know, expansive in, in politics, it's going on almost 20 years, I have been a staffer, I've been the one climbing up, and I've been the boss. And not just in my firm now, I, I was the government relations director for an association, and I inherited a culture in that spot that was maybe not friendly to women. I was the first woman to hold that position in the history of that association, which was over 100 years old. So I had that responsibility, and I inherited a culture. And I will tell you, the first year in that, I felt a responsibility to continue this GR culture of, you know, going out and this drinking kind of culture of politics that that wasn't who I was, and I had an opportunity to change it. And the first year out, I, I, I'm the first one to admit that I didn't. And I had one woman working for me and a team. And in situations, 
she was put in positions, as was I, but I was the boss. That, that looking back now, was I, I had an opportunity to change something and I didn't do it that first year. And so with this conversation, it is an opportunity for all of us to reflect. And, and I've since called her and said, so you know as you're reading this, if it's in the back of your head that you were ever in positions that I could have taken you out of and I didn't, I'm sorry and know that I now have a firm, we make changes in our firm and I'll do that. But I say that not because I think it's my responsibility so that men will come forward. It's humanity. <laughs> it's not my responsibility and it shouldn't be. I, I work really hard to get to a position where I can offer women in my space a great working environment and I work really hard and it's one of the things I'm really proud of for the, the women that work for me and with me. Um, but I, I, I won't take that responsibility, quite frankly, for men. It was exactly that response that I needed. It will help men. Men need help, was my basic. They need help to hear they're not alone. They stood by, they did nothing, they're not alone. That if we can just help them come out of their, I have to always be a man and be tough. That is my take. And as a follow-up, I, I appreciate that. I just will still, I'm gonna end it with it. I, I don't take that responsibility. But I'm happy to share my stories. Thank you for the question. And this is why it's an uncomfortable conversation, and that's good. It's a good thing. Next question. Good evening. Thank, thank you all, panelists, for coming out on, a, on an evening and spending this time doing this. Uh, Member Friedman, in particular, I know you have a difficult schedule that, that's thrust upon you in, in the work you do. And, you know, uh, it's, it's good that you all spend the time working on this. Uh, my question is, is for, for Assemblymember Friedman, but others may, may have thoughts on it too. As you, as you look to find a better, a better way to respond to situations in the Capitol where there's employment at will and you are who you work for, uh, um, how do you, uh, what, what do you have thoughts about how you build a structure or where you go? Do you take it outside or you do something different inside so that the, the people who are tasked to respond uh, are trusted by by both by by victims and both the, and the accused that it, that it's a fair a fair process and and that those people are not are not going to be subject to getting their chains yanked. Um. Oh, that's a good question, and I don't pretend that given the realities of the capital and how it operates, that any of this is going to be easy. Um, there's a lot of nuances to a lot of the policy. Um, we're not a private company that has the ability to fire anybody who's there. And there's, there's a culture in the Capitol that's always operated with a lot of secrecy and autonomy um, and, and lack of exposure to the public and to employees. And that's not necessarily going to change. I mean, the way that the structure of the legislature works the way that it's leadership driven. They don't have a corporate board that's meeting in public. A lot of things happen behind closed doors about a lot of things. And so trying to develop a mechanism to, br to bring um, more transparency and more objectivity and more predictability into the process and do a process that's not 
When it comes to legislators, that's never had any of that, quite frankly. Um, um, given then also how do you do that while you protect victims who may not want to have their identities exposed um, and provide due process and, and do all of that when you're operating in a politicized environment with the press always wanting salacious details. That's all going to be the challenge, but I, I think that we can certainly do a lot better. Um, you know, we, we know that we have a problem. We know that we have not been protective enough of people who come in contact with the Capitol. We understand these issues. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I think that we, you know, we, we know that. We know where the weak spots are. And I think that there'll be a range of options. But at the end of the day, we can certainly do a lot better than we've done. We can be a lot more protective. We can be a lot more transparent. We can be a lot more objective. And we can have a lot more transparency. Um, and we're already getting there. Just, just the fact that the legislature is responding to the LA Times public records request and turning over results of investigations um, is important. But now we have to make sure that investigations are always done when they need to be done and that legislators know that they're not going to be protected when they do egregious things. That's also going to be very transformative because if there's one thing that nobody wants is to, ha if you're elected particularly, is to have your transgressions on the front page of the LA Times. So you're right, there's absolutely uh, it, it, a lot of challenges and as the discussions go on and as the committee meets, I, a lot of these nuances and challenges are going to be aired out so people will understand what the challenges are. But I have a lot of faith when I, when I heard you know, from some of the experts last time, some of the attorneys who spoke, there are best practices out there. You know, there's not a lot of them, but there are some of them they are starting to emerge. And, um, you know, I think knowing where your weak spots are goes a long way in helping you be able to shore them up. Thanks very much. And I had a follow-up question about that in terms of this is the uh, legislature is going to be and has already introduced some bills uh, addressing this topic. Um, I just read recently uh, one of our local assembly uh, people introduced a bill that lawmakers foot the bill for their own sexual misconduct settlements. I didn't realize that the taxpayers paid for that in the past, but now there's a bill for that. That's one that I saw. I think, uh, Samantha, you mentioned closing the loophole, exempting the legislature from uh, whistleblower laws. Apparently, this bill was one that was always introduced by uh, Assemblymember Melendez, uh, and it got to the Assembly, but got blocked in the Senate, but this seems to have a, more of a chance to go through. Um, I think I, uh, another one is ban the use of non-disclosure agreements by both private and public employers including the legislature, in settlements for sexual misconduct or sex discrimination. Um, and I think there's one more, but I wanted to see from all the panelists, which of these bills um, or others do you like, do you see um, uh, having traction? And if you can say, are there others in the works or like a dream bill or uh, something that you think should be coming out of the legislature and, um, and uh, should apply to California? Well, I'll start. Um, I think this is the moment 
when some of this legislation can get through. Um, and it's one of the reasons to really seize on this moment because it may not be the hot topic in a year or two years. So it's really important that when we identify areas in the in sort of state policy that need to be shored up or changed that we do that. And I'm a co-author on some of those bills. I'm also an, uh, an author of a bill to extend the statute of limitations to bring uh, sexual harassment claims forward. So there's a, you know, we're, I think a lot of us have our listening ears open right now to the advocates and to the people who work in these areas because they know, they know where the weaknesses are. You know, not all of them, but when lawyers come in and they say, hey, I deal with sexual harassment and here's the, the, here's the thing that's always stopped people from getting justice, those are, are, you know, the areas that are really worth looking at. Samantha? I, I, I will just actually, before I even speak, I will say, uh, speak further, I will say that the, the bill on the statute of limitations is, is of those that has introduced me personally, I think is one of the most compelling just because, so state of California, your statute of limitations to report a complaint on sexual harassment against an employer is one year. You get two years in a fender bender. So, you know, it's, it, it's an example of how little we've paid attention to a lot of these things as a matter of policy. And, and there's countless bills. I mean, I think there's already a couple, you know, maybe almost a dozen already that folks are introducing. And, and yet they still don't get all the way around the problem. And, and so I think our responsibility as advocates is going to be making sure that the legislation is thoughtful because, I, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for our members who are voting on these issues. It's really hard to vote against a bill on sexual harassment, even if it's poorly thought out, right? Because then you're the member that hates people who were sexually harassed. And, and so everyone right now is sort of rushing to the table with these bills, but they're not necessarily all comprehensive. And, and one thing that as we were moving forward with nonprofit status, we were looking around thinking, what can we do that's impactful? We don't want to just replicate what someone else is doing. And as advocates and, and people who work in policy, we really do have a responsibility to get the policy right. And so we've been reaching out to folks in, in industries across the state and in, across the nation to try and make sure that we're being inclusive. And, and you know, I, I know Alicia and myself were on the phone for a very long time this afternoon with women in some other communities, um, farm worker community in particular, who are like, oh no, we have our own policy platform. It's, it's fundamentally different than the dozens of bills you guys are introducing because the way that it impacts us is different. And and so, you know, we're we're committed to making sure that as we're moving forward, we're working both with our legislators to make sure that we're supporting them in policy solutions that make sense and aren't just, you know, top of the headline sensationalism. And then frankly, what can we do to elevate the voices of the other advocacy groups and organizations that work in the field that don't necessarily need a legislative solution, but they do need support, they need, do need to be elevated, um, and we do need to make sure that we're including them in conversations about changing the culture. So um, so we're really excited and, and appreciative of this moment and, and hopeful that it's not just this moment, but it's it's on a go-forward basis. Janine. Yeah, so I, I think that the um, bill to make all the settlement agreements public would be huge. So I'm a former employment litigator. I was Google's first employment lawyer. Um, and actually, I'm a little bit stumped um, as to why the state legislature doesn't have to make it public when cities and counties, that's all public. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit confusing to me. And, and just, just having it being public so that everyone can see and there's some transparency. And we all know, and certainly as, as a litigator, former litigator, I know that you will always 
settle some cases as a cost of doing business, but let them explain that um, so that they can say, okay, you know, this was just for me to move on. And I think you need to make that more visible. And then, then the other kind of idea I want to put out there is, again, as a former litigator, I left litigation because, you know, no disrespect to this, this venue, but policy and law, I, I think, and this is a, a provocative statement, I think that the laws of, of the 1990s and 2000s have, have actually led us to the point where we're at. So that meaning we used to have an environment uh, where there was more you know, discussion and agreement in the workplace. And then that got superseded by individual laws protecting people's rights and thinking that there was a path to the courthouse to address any violations of those rights. And I think that that is misleading in the sense that when you're actually in the workplace, and you folks can chime in, uh, you really have to have a death wish if you want to file a lawsuit. I mean, your, your, your career is, has been essentially over. So what I've seen in my personal experience as a litigator is, you know, when, when somebody files a lawsuit, they're, they're giving you the middle finger, they're done. They're ready to go kamikaze and just end, end their career. So I think this is more of a social issue, um, obviously upholded by policy, but I think for us to really make some changes, we need to realize that this is a cultural social issue that we need to push forward. Jody, just briefly. Sure, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think it's it's really important the work that you have been doing, Assemblywoman, and it's important for the House, both houses, to get everything in order because it does send, send a message that this is an important issue. Um, the statute of limitations bill, even there's a bill on uh, hotel workers and having a panic button. So it's important that we send the message to the state of California that this is an important issue and we're looking at all of it. But I, I also, you know, I agree with everyone's statements. It's important to look at it through the lens of a victim. There are, I mean, if you're a single mother of three working at a job, you don't necessarily have the luxury to file a lawsuit and go public and worry about all those things. And if you can do some kind of settlement that gives you enough freedom to go look for another job, I, there's plenty of women that would take that. And, you know, we just don't want them to be in that position in the first place. So a cultural change means the state has to send that message and has to get our own house in order and we need to do that. And then, but then they're like, I, I don't want that to be the, the end of it. I don't think anybody does that we, we clean up a few legislators leaving and we, pass some laws and then culture goes on as it does and and you know not I worry more for for the the women that are working in jobs where they don't have freedom to leave so, so we're an hour in and we're run, we ran a little late I hope it's okay with the panelists and you if we sit 15 minutes more of questions would that be okay okay let's take a next question from the mic my question is for Janine and Samantha both of you spoke to the idea of your concern for a backlash coming against this movement. And uh, with the recent Aziz Ansari allegations that just came out this past week, I personally, reading the response to that on the internet, was very disillusioned and for the first time kind of thought the backlash is already happening. Um, 
And it seems like the backlash seemed to be rooted in people who were not involved in the incident deciding this wasn't that bad. Um, and it seems like the fissure in the movement is coming from people saying that was just sexual harassment, whereas the woman who experienced it with Aziz said it was sexual assault. So I was wondering if you could speak to the backlash that's already happening in the movement, even coming from the left, because Aziz Ansari is you know, definitely proudly progressive, but clearly is still embroiled in all of this, and where people who aren't even involved feel they can draw the line and say, no, that wasn't really assault. So I was just hoping you could speak to that kind of uh, progressive backlash that's even happening now. Who would like to start? Samantha? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. It's, it's a conversation that we've had a lot recently and certainly in the last 24 hours on, on the heels of that with Aziz Ansari. And, you know, in the absence of clear boundaries, in the absence of a community conversation, in the absence of any kind of redemption or discourse or evolution, we are left with what we have right now, which is a popularity contest. And so you see people just jumping behind someone in defense um, or opposition based on how they feel about them viscerally and, and how they feel about them in comparison to their own personal experiences. Um, so it, you know, it, when I said Twitter justice earlier, it's exactly what I'm talking about. And it's not a place that we want to be. It, it's not a place that promotes healthy discourse. And it, it's a problem absolutely even in our progressive community. Um, you know, one of the things that was most compelling to me within a few hour, a few days of us starting the, the We Said Enough movement, we get calls from states all over the country, from lawmakers, from lobbyists, and, and California certainly is a very, very progressive state. We pride ourselves on being that. The second state to move and, and come out and launch with us was Oregon in a coordinated fashion. And you would think, well, of course, it's because they're a progressive state. No, it was not. Uh, Democratic leaders in Oregon that moved forward on the We Said Enough movement. It was a team of lobbyists who happened to be led by the lobbyists for the Koch brothers um, because it's a, a Democratic majority state and the minority party there didn't feel like they were getting recourse when they were coming forward with complaints about sexual assault. And so it, it really truly is a party dynamic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not even always just a male versus female issue. Um, you know, after the, the LA Times article came out, I, I came to my office the next day and, and our operations manager, who's a gay man, pulled me aside and he said, great article, is it okay if I say that they do it to us too? And, and so we've got a long ways to go in, in terms of, of conversation and, and healing and resources. Um, and again, this sort of parading people out into public and the press appropriating their trauma for people's amusement, it's not gonna get us anywhere ultimately. And, and frankly, it's triggering for people. It's exhausting. I don't know about you guys, but I'm exhausted. So, you know, where are we going next? And those are the conversations that as we, you know, whether it's legislators or advocates or people who are working in the field that I'm really looking forward to having from an empowerment standpoint, because we can't just linger in this popularity contest of, you know, hey, you're cool, you're not, for reasons that don't necessarily make a lot of sense. Um, we've we've got to get to a place of, of moving forward as a national community. And let me just add to that. It's a great comment, Samantha. But um, 
you know, the, we have a, a jury process for a reason, right? So the, the harassment standard is both subjective, uh, subjective, subjectively offensive and objectively offensive. And the objective part is decided by a jury of your peers. And not everyone's gonna th think the same thing. And that's just life. And I know, you know, from where I sit, we have interactions in our content and we show video scenes and we have a polling exercise and it's amazing how people have different, you know, reactions to the same scene. And it is not amongst gender. It's just, it's just different demographics based on your perspectives, your experiences, all of that. So these things are not easy, cut and dry answers. They're very nuanced. And um, a story that my colleague, uh, Patty Perez, who's on our team says, and Patty w was one of the people who wrote the harassment regulation. And she has a story of she was uh, at a client site, uh, this was years ago, and she's telling a story about somebody who uh, their, their fly was undone <laughs> and asked a colleague, uh, is my fly undone? And so one person thought that was completely offensive. Another person asked, well, was the person's fly undone? Like, and it just shows you like different, different perspectives, so. All right, next question. Um, so one of the thoughts that's come to my mind as we've talked about this is a, a question for our legislator. And, and one of our panel members kind of brought it up is I'm kind of shocked that our legislature still believes that it can be governed by different rules. I come from local government, um, and uh, if it applies to our private employers, if it applies to, applies to our public employees, why wouldn't it apply to our legislature in employment, in whistleblower, in um, uh, transparency, and it just seems like if you expect everybody else to do it, why shouldn't we expect you to do it? And I'm wondering why we're really only, why we're not batting for the far seats, why we're willing to say, well, we'll go this far because we should be kind of this transparent, but we still have to have this behind the cloak of darkness in order to get our business done, because I just don't think that's the case, and maybe we should expect more at this point while we have some momentum. No, I think that um, it's a great point, and I think it all does apply to the legislature, and that's the point, that it, it legally applies. Um, public records requ requests apply the same way. I'm also from local government. Uh, before a year ago, I was on the Glendale City Council for seven years, and uh, from my experience, local government has the exact same problem, and the problem is that when you're an elected official, um, it's very hard, that accountability is very hard to find. Who is the, what is the mechanism either in local government or in the legislature to hold an elected official accountable? So in local government, um, I can tell you in our city, you have a city attorney and a city manager who are the top kind of people there besides the city council themselves. They're both direct reports to the city council. So what are they gonna do about their boss who is the city council, who is the only, entity that hires them or fires them, right? And then for the city council, the council members that are their colleagues, you, you know, are sitting up there needing that person's vote, being politically vulnerable occasion, you know, sometimes. Certainly if you have a mayor and then the other people are council members, you have an inequity of power. 
So it's not that they shouldn't be accountable, it's that there is no mechanism to hold them accountable, except for exposure in the press. It's really the only way. Because the other thing is, even with, elect, with the most elected officials, what's the mechanism for getting rid of them? You know, that's not really spelled out in a lot of city charters. They can be recalled by the public, they can't be fired. You know, your colleagues in, in Glendale anyway, I don't know of any mechanism. If we had had a colleague that was doing something horrible, I don't, know, I don't even know if we had a mechanism to expel them. I think that there's a public process for recall. So that governance accountability is just not clear, and it's not clear in the legislature either. Um, expulsion, I'm not even, I, I haven't gotten clarity even on how that works. And is it really up to people's colleagues to police them? You know, and, and it's difficult for colleagues because we are all in a vulnerable position um, with each other. That's why I think that we need, as a legislature, and I would submit to you that city councils also need some other mechanism to hold those elected officials accountable, whether it's a mechanism, I mean, we've seen this in other, some, some, some elected, bo some governmental bodies have ethics officers, ethics commissions. Those are models that exist with different levels of success, but most local governments do not have that. I don't know of any city besides the city of Los Angeles, and maybe there's others I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's others I don't know about, that have an ethics commission that actually can expel a council member or discipline a council member besides maybe exposing them. But this hasn't always been thought through with things like sexual harassment. It has with a lot of criminal offenses. But with sexual harassment, I'd say, is it written into your city charter? Where is the written policy in your local government that governs that? So. I think that these are issues that are kind of emerging issues just in governance structures and in the same way that you know it was maybe emerging with sort of private companies and that's that's what the legislature now has to grapple with. There, there are those mechanisms there. Leadership can do things. But to me there's, you know, I, I don't think that's objective enough. I don't think there's enough checks and balances. That's my personal opinion. And I would say that in at least the city councils I've come in contact with, and I was on the board of the Independent Cities Association, I was active in the league, I've never seen this discussion out there. How do you hold, what are the mechanisms in these local governments or state government or the federal government to hold elected officials accountable besides recall and exposure? Because that's, that's maybe not enough. So I'm gonna wrap it up with uh, two questions uh, tied into where do we go from here? You know, what, what's next? And the first question is for uh, Samantha and Janine because I thought it was interesting how uh, they told me separately that they were, their organizations are working on apps or technology um, that they're beta testing uh, and, and starting to move forward on next month. So you had talked a little bit about yours briefly, but I just wanted to see if you wanted to give more details and I guess if there's any, you know, anything we should know about uh, if we can use this, you know, how it'll help, what, what do you see uh, going forward with your individual apps? So let's start with you, Samantha. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, as we're forming the nonprofit, already being advocates in, in the political and nonprofit space, we wanted to make sure we were doing something that elevated and, and didn't duplicate. We wanted to be a platform, not a destination, and, and, and something that was comprehensive and safe for people. And that means being safe for victims, so confidential, easy to use, safe, and, and frankly, a good resource. Um, in terms of you know the accused or people who are at reputational risk, how do you restore? Is there a restorative justice component? you know, the vast majority of complaints you're talking about in a workplace or a university, we're not talking about rape, we're not talking about assault, we're talking about all the things that are in the gray area that we've discussed 
so that was that's been discussed or articulated tonight just about the nuance and so how do you handle those conversations and then third how do you just reduce general incidents liability and risk and and so we've been working on um end-to-end -end solutions that really any trainer resource entity nonprofit, um, or organization can plug their own resources into which is why i'm totally looking forward to hanging out later new friend um but you know we we're beta testing in, in the next month, and, and the place that we're beta testing on is really interesting because it doesn't require you to have an employer, it doesn't require you to have a university, it doesn't require you to have an entity to report. And, and ultimately, we'll have end-to-end -end solutions where you will have that option, but frankly, in the moment, victims are looking for resources. They're looking to feel solidarity, they're looking to be connected, um, and they're looking to really preserve their right to make decisions on a go-forward basis. And so we'll be announcing more broadly at the Women's March this weekend and then um, collecting folks with the capacity to beta test up to 10 million people actually on the platform um, over the course of January, which is when we'll start beta testing. And what you'll be able to do um, as a victim, as a bystander, as a witness, you'll be able to log in and report confidentially, not anonymously, um, what you saw, what you heard, what you witnessed in a very, very quick, quick, easy, icon-based way. Um, and then based on that, there'll basically be a Netflix-style technology. It'll immediately start kicking you to resources. And so we're rapidly working to partner with local, state, and federal-level partners, um, you know, Be They Futures Without Violence, Planned Parenthood, and others. Um, who have these resources already, who are doing this work, and then much like when you watch a TV show on Netflix, you log in the next time and it says, these shows are suggested for you. Well, based on who you are, where you are, and what you reported, it'll immediately start kicking you suggestions for solutions and resources in your region. Um, and it'll preserve your report for you. Because the one thing that we keep hearing over and over and over and over ad nauseum is, why didn't you come forward right away? People don't always, they haven't always processed right away what happened. They don't, they're not always safe to come forward right away. Um, and, and so having a time-stamped report that you filed confidentially for yourself that you can bring forward later is extraordinarily helpful. Having resources that you can access immediately is extraordinarily helpful. And the data that we collect from that will make available in a, a de-identified capacity so that we can really start looking at what's happening by region, by industry, by gender, by race, by demographic. Um, and then once we get through that phase of testing, we'll have a wraparound solution for employers so that they can actually interact with their communities and start reducing risk and improving culture. And, and to some of the points that have been made here it, tonight, it, the, the improving culture is the ultimate goal. It's, it can't be punitive, it, it has to be elevating. Um, and those are the type of solutions that we're looking at moving forward. So for someone who wants to beta test, would you go to dot or where would you go to find the so information? We, yeah, we will have um, English and Jeff, I'm looking at you, Spanish language maybe? Yeah, begrudgingly, he says we're gonna have it on time. We've been on a rapid time scale, but we'll have English and Spanish language beta testing um, ready to go by early February. And as of this Saturday, you'll be able to sign up and pre-register to do it on wesaidenough.com. Cool. And Janine, can you describe your new app, what you're going to be doing? Yeah, so it sounds, great minds think alike, so it sounds pretty darn similar. But I've seen, um, you know, over my experience working with both employees and employers, you just need to have an outside neutral resource. And so this is an app that gives everyone, anywhere, no matter, you know, if they're employed or not, their own, you know, private channel to get expert advice, get videos, get checklists, to get guides. 
Um, and if need be, if it's appropriate, you know, ask to report a situation to the employer. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the app and our platform makes it so that it's like a, a web-based neutral mediator, you know, mediating the employer and the employee uh, to their mutual benefit. So uh, free online. Where and where information for that will be? Yeah, so we are um, coming out with our beta next month. Um, it'll be available um, probably towards the end of the month it's on our website, mtrain.com. Um, and the app is Hootsworth. What's that again? <laughs> Hootsworth. Hootsworth. Hootsworth is our, Hootsworth. Okay. Is our mascot. Yes. Got it. Okay, and we'll post that on, on our website too, information. Last question for all of you. Um, I'm going to start with Jody, put you on the spot, but making this stick, I think you all talked a little bit about how to turn this uh, into a societal change and it, it, it's not just a, a topic conversation that, that, that dies out. What's one thing or a few things, whatever, that you see would make it stick? Let's start with Jody. Uh, that's a, I mean, I, Hope I have the answer. <laughs> I doubt that I, I do. There, there might be many things. <laughs> I think there's many, thing? many answers. Um, I think, you know, to your point about bringing up um, the most recent, I think, controversial case on, and was that assault? Was it? Why didn't she leave? Why didn't all of those questions? I mean, I think those situations are super important to talk about. I think most people understand the C.K. Lewis masturbation scene was not okay. Like, you have to keep your pants on. I think that's, uh, I mean, it's clear for most of us, although not for everybody, apparently. Um, but, I, but I think the nuanced conversations are super important to have. And so I think, and this is a hard part for everyone, as was discussed earlier, but I think it's important to, to have a voice in that conversation where no, maybe that wasn't your definition of assault, but you had a very young woman feel really, really bad at the end of that. And, and so, you know, I, I have a 21-year-old son that I would encourage him to read that encounter start to finish and never ever make somebody feel like that. And harassment does not exist in a bubble and it doesn't exist without misogyny. And so these are the conversations that are really important to have. And while it's harsh and awful to read people's thoughts that they feel free to have on social media right now, that is the culture that we live in. And I don't know if that's changing anytime um, in the future. So, I mean, I think as we're hearing people feel free to, to, to put up their really harsh and ugly comments. I think it's important for other, for us to speak up and talk about these are the nuanced conversations that we need to have. And, and just really quickly, I think the other part of it is just responsibility and reflection on, on what we can do in our own space right now. And you know, for my firm, we're very small. We don't meet the legal requirements of having to do something. We did it anyway, and we brought in, you know, I have Mandy in the audience, who should, you guys should probably get together, but she's a friend of mine who does sexual harassment prevention, and we brought her into our very small firm to have the conversation, and we talked with her a lot about, as we spoke, that, I, 
we're women owned. There's only two men in our firm who are really good guys. And I, I'm confident that we're not um, harassing our employees. But let's have the conversation about we don't live in a vacuum and in a bubble and we work in politics. And we, I've never had the conversation with them about what happens if something happens to them. And sure enough, when we had the conversation, of course our staff has been had incidents in the Capitol. Of course they've had clients that have weirdly emailed them in uncomfortable situations. And they didn't come tell us because they're we didn't have that conversation about what we want them to do. And we did a really comprehensive two-day thing with our staff to the point of now we have in our office safe words. <laughs> so if we're out and about in the capital community and they come to us with this phrase, we know, oh, they're in a situation that they need help and we get them out of there. And I say that because I still will say I don't want to put the responsibility back on, on all of women to be like having all these code words and what we want the, the culture to change but I think most importantly as an employer and just as a person that cares about other young women let's have those conversation about what how can I help you that it's different for me now I've I've figured out how to navigate it I'm older <laughs> it doesn't happen to me the same but it you know I, I think we just need to 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 really have a reflection of our own world and what we can do and what conversations we can have. And the culture part of it, absent all the great work that we're doing, is, is where we're gonna make changes. Laura? There was a um, really interesting editorial in the LA Times yesterday about the um, Aziz incident. And I recommend people look at it. It's kind of, it was a little bit on the harsh side. Um, but it really, it, it talked about just how fundamentally all of this starts when we are young and how we sort of teach and imprint our girls and our boys. And I can remember being young, it was a long time ago, but being in that place when you know I first became sexually active and just never having any guidance about kind of what I was supposed to be getting out of sexual experiences and really looking to the men, the boys, you know, these are boys, for what, you know, and just sort of deferring to them. Like, well, they, you know, I'm supposed to just go along with what they want to do. I don't want this guy to not like me. I don't want, you know, people to talk. And maybe I'm supposed to do this. No one's really told me what I'm supposed to do. But sort of what I wanted was never, I was never told that that could be part of the equation. Um, and the article was talking about we need to just do a much better job of sort of teaching girls, you know, to, um, you know, sort of, know what to expect and to speak up for themselves and it all starts there and it all starts with those cultural imprinting that we do about what our expectations are in society for girls and what they are for boys it, it all it comes down to that gender imbalance in the workplace in politics the way that women politicians are um, um, the expectations on women politics the way that their actions their dress, the way they speak, all of those, and the way people take those cues and how aware we have to be as opposed to, to the men. I mean, I, I talk about how when I was on the Glendale Council and I was the first woman in 10 years and, you know, the city incorporated in 1906, five council members that whole time, I got elected in 2009, I was only the sixth woman to be elected on that council and that's not that unusual. And so constantly my own friends who worked on my campaign, you know, over the years I was always getting these emails from them about how I wasn't dressing right or my hair didn't look good, you know, yada, yada, yada. And 
you know, or smile, Smiling. smile, you know, and it all goes back to that. So let me tell you like the most traumatic movie I've ever seen. And this is like, I think this movie explains like women's experiences. Do you remember the movie Working Girl? Worst movie ever. Think about the message of Working Girl. Sigourney Weaver, the only woman that you see in this very large corporation, it's like, you know, a 20, you know, a 50-story building in Manhattan, and she's like the only woman, and she's a vice president, and she's a little bit older than Sigourney Weaver, she's like a little bit brasher, and she must be taken down. That's the whole message of the movie. So Sigourney Weaver so Melanie, Gri Melanie Griffith, yes. Melanie Griffith, who by the way sleeps with the you know the boss, um, who's like young and soft and clearly not going to ever make waves, gets to take Sigourney Weaver down because Sigourney Weaver is loud and bossy, and she's basically a man in that movie. She's a woman who dares to be a man, a woman who dares to be powerful and assertive and good at her job and she goes skiing and you know, she like does all these great things, but she has to fail. And that's the movie that was held up when I was coming of age and becoming like a woman in the business world. And that was the movie that was like held up as like you're supposed to be Melanie Griffith. Um, you know, you should act like her. And you know what, I'm not gonna act like her. I wanna act like Sigourney Weaver, an alien. You know, that's what we should be like training ourselves. Like that's who we all wanna be. So, but it really does explain like, you know, for years, that was, you know, I was in the film industry and every, every company had one woman, right? And maybe another one would come in and we knew we were pitted against each other. There was only, it was like Highlander. There was only, there was only gonna be one by the end. You know, and it's, as long as we have the world, we have the Highlander world for women where there's gonna be, one, you know, there will be one, um, you know, we're never gonna solve this. Um, we're always gonna be the ones that um, are to be preyed on or given our power from the men around us as opposed from each other. So, you know, I'll tell you right now, my committee's not solving any of those problems. So if those are your expectations, it's not going to happen. You know, we, we need to be laser focused on what we can do, you know, all of us and, you know, what our role is. But that's what we have to overcome. And it's a big hurdle. And we've been talking about this for all, since I've been around, you know, my whole life. And, you know, this is just pushing that ball forward. So it's important. And I love, though, that so many women are just like, I think men are like really saying like, wow, these women are really frustrated. Like there's, you know, there's some kind of experience that they're having that they're really, you know, pissed off about. Well, I think that's great. And thank you for all the work that you are doing to, to bring this forward. And I look forward to continuing down that journey. Janine. Yeah, so I think if there's one thing I would uh, just trace everything back to, it's the power imbalance, right? I mean, the power imbalance is what causes all of this. And so, you know, I'm thinking back to Anita Hill in 1991, and then 1992, we saw the first time two female senators for the state of California. Um, so if there's one thing that we can do, we could use this moment in time when all women are mobilized, uh, a lot of male allies are mobilized. They want to change the dynamics. This is a time, both in, in public service and in private organizations, we just need to go. We need to go. We need to get more women in positions of power so it's not one person. Because I, as, as a woman in business and a woman in technology in, in Silicon Valley, I've been frustrated, not so much anymore, but, you know, I've been frustrated why other women don't lean out and help help me and others. 
And it's because of your point, which is there's only one spot, and they don't have the social capital or the business capital to lean out and help another, another woman. But the men do. And, and I, I know I see it because I have, I have male advisors in, in, in my business and they're all male allies that they have daughters or even if they don't, they're socially minded and they wanna, they wanna change the culture. So um, if there's one thing that we need to do, it's mobilize now and, and change the power dynamics. Let's get more women into the C-suite, more women into elected office and let's, let's change. Samantha, last word. 1992, year of the woman, last year of the woman. A lot of people are talking about this year being the year of the woman. I would point out that is over 25 years later. And that's when we say the pendulum swinging and sort of the fear that if we don't capture this moment, I don't want to wait another 25 years. Um, I got a call from a friend, colleague, that's, that's been helping with this work recently. And, and my daughter's almost 16. And Mike's husband recently got remarried. I didn't think I would, but I happened to really like his wife. In fact, I said to him the other day, thank you for finding a new friend for me. And she came forward, she's, a, she's also a Capitol staffer, um, and I'm lobbyist, she's a Capitol staffer, I'm a Democrat, she's a Republican. But she came forward in the Cron and she was talking about how someone groped her against her consent and she basically wailed on him in a stairwell, just be, you know, slapped him. And I got a call from a friend, and she said, well, I read that your daughter's stepmother slapped a dude that grabbed her butt. And I said, I think she did. And she said, so you started a women's movement with your friends, and she slapped someone that grabbed her butt. I think your daughter's going to be fine. <laughs> and not too long later, my daughter had been invited to a couple different local proms uh, at various public schools, and she declined all of them. And I said, why are you not going? You like to get dressed up. You like to, you know, spend my money on like contouring. She thinks makeup is a sport. And she said, you know, I don't, I'm not really interested in any of these guys. And if I go with them, they're a little handsy. And, you know, I just don't want any of them to think they can put a hand on me. And I, it's not even worth the pretty party or the fancy dress to be in a situation where I would be uncomfortable. So I just would rather not go. And I thought, well, I was 30 before I figured that out. So, like, good on you. But it's because we talk about it all the time. And, and as we talk about tech solutions and what do we do moving forward, keeping the conversation going and, and sort of not having the sense of, oh, good, we're fixing it. We fixed it. We've not fixed it. We're not even close to fixing it. The conversation has to keep going. And technology is good for only two things, as a friend of mine always says, speed and efficiency. It's not necessarily good at expediting speedy and efficient positive conversations. And so as we're building out tech tools and we're looking at sort of automating and using the tools that we're all talking on and touching 3,000 times a day, by the way, your smartphones, using those to actually promote interpersonal interactions is gonna be important. And so whether it's leveraging technology or it's levering the bully pulpit of being in politics or those of us that have privilege, making sure the conversation is consistent and ongoing between men and women, even when it's uncomfortable and beyond the point of discomfort, is gonna be the only thing that makes sure that we don't have to wait another 25 years for the year of the woman. It's such a great discussion. Um, I feel like we only scratched the surface, but thank you for sticking it out and staying past the uh, eight o'clock hour. Thank you again, panelists, for coming and talking and 
and really opening up and and um i i look forward to seeing where this conversation takes us in 2019 and beyond so just want to wrap it up say thanks again and uh have a good evening and uh stick around and have um more pints thank you you've been listening to california groundbreakers tonight's policy and a pint conversation was held on january 17th 2018 at Station One in West Sacramento. Thanks to our panelists for joining us to talk about this sensitive but serious issue. Thanks also to John Howard and Tim Foster from Capital Weekly for filming this event for their TV show, Politics on Tap, which airs on the California Channel. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.